Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. And uh, good to be back in God's Word as well. I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. That's where we find ourselves this morning, the fourth chapter of Acts. And, and just to express from uh, my family our, our heartfelt gratitude for the gift from the congregation and, uh, and the kindness that you expressed to us, we, we deeply appreciate it and deeply appreciate and love all of you as well. And uh, thank you for that and your partnership with us for the sake of the gospel. Acts chapter 4. And uh, the chapter that we're looking at today is, it's kind of a, a courtroom drama. It actually extends the, the story that we heard two weeks ago. Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 go together, if you haven't realized. So the last time we were uh, together in this book, we heard about Peter and John healing this man who had been crippled from birth. And that story set the stage for what we see here in chapter 4. Now, most countries have been shaped by some kind of courtroom dramas. And I'm sure you remember some of the big ones here in Canada. You're probably a lot more familiar and lived through uh, different ones than I would have lived through. You're probably more familiar with ones like the Oco Crisis or the Stanley Cup riots and what was involved with that. There are also trials in this country that, that never came, trials that never happened. There have been controversies surrounding some ministers of the gospel who defied public health orders and continued to hold public services during the pandemic. One notable example of that is the Grace Life Church in Alberta, which repeatedly held services in defiance of public health orders and was eventually fenced off in April 2021. The church's pastor, James Coates, was briefly jailed for violating bail conditions, but eventually released and the charges against him were dropped. And so it's hard to have come out of that season and not be familiar with controversy surrounding religious leaders and COVID-19 restrictions. And that really highlighted tensions in, in Canada, and not Canada only, but the United States and around the world, at least the Western world, between public health concerns and religious freedom, as well as debates about the appropriate balance between individual rights and collective safety during public health crises. Now these trials almost all represent a growing clash of worldviews. Whichever side one might land on, on those things, and by God's grace, he kept Pineland very united during that season. But wherever you land on those kind of things, they do represent a growing clash of worldviews around the world between popular opinion, between secular governments, and between Christianity. And I say all of that to highlight that the text before us today is a clash of worldviews as well. This case in Acts chapter 4 is about 
the biblical teaching on the Messiah. This, this court case is about the role of religious authority. This is a courtroom drama where God's Word figures prominently. So we're going to read Acts chapter 4, verse 1 to 22. So I ask you to follow along in your Bible. Look at it as I read. Listen to it as I read. Let's, let's take in with all of the senses that God has given us His Word. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, said to them rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For what a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And may the Lord be pleased to bless the reading and now the preaching of His Word. It's quite a story here. It's quite a, 
a courtroom drama. Surely you noticed one of the key phrases here, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the Jewish leaders are trying to stop the apostles from spreading the gospel. And by the way, sinful humanity will always make whatever effort is needed to do the same thing. This, this has been the plight of God's people throughout all human history. From, from this court of the, the Jewish High Council to courtrooms in Canada to the court of public opinion, Whatever it is, sinful humanity is always working to stop the speaking and the teaching in the name of Jesus. And what this passage teaches us, what we're going to learn from these 22 verses today, is that the gospel cannot be stopped. The gospel cannot be stopped. So, no, like Peter and John, don't stop speaking the name of Jesus. Really, in our text, there are three scenes in this courtroom drama that we're going to look at today. The arrest, and the question, and then the verdict. So look with me at the arrest. Arrest because of the gospel, verse 1 to 4. This chapter begins with the Jewish leaders, these, these high priests, these Sadducees, it says these guys are the ruling council of the Jewish people. They're, they're, they're sometimes referred to as the Sanhedrin. And it says that they come upon Peter and John as they're preaching to this crowd that gathered in the temple. These guys don't like what they heard. Verse 2, in fact, gives us a pretty good idea of what the Jewish leaders thought about Peter and John's preaching. It says, they were greatly annoyed. Now, I think, I think I'm not totally sure, but I think... Luke wants to give us a little bit of comic relief. This, this could almost translate, they stumbled upon them, and they were, they were just try, try to picture these guys in their large robes. They're, they're in authority. They're respected in the community, and they're irritated. They're greatly annoyed. They're, they're losing their cool. I thought, I thought we put a stop to this Jesus guy. I thought, I thought we were finished with it. And, and these guys are still talking about him. What is going on here? So annoyed, in fact, that they have the temple guard seize Peter and John and throw them in prison. But it's, it's late in the day, no more court business happening, judges have gone home, so they keep them in prison overnight. It seems that these, these Jewish leaders were hoping to, to stop the bleeding, to clamp down on the spread of this Jesus talk. They, they thought they handled it. Man, we, we bribed the soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb. We told them, don't, don't mention this. Just say that his followers stole the body or make up some story. Listen, they did all of their PR campaigning, all of the PR campaigning they could think of, but their best attempt to squash the story of, the, of Jesus' death and resurrection didn't work. They couldn't stop the gospel. And verse 4 says that from these guys' perspective, the damage had already been done. Many of those 
who heard the word, believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So not long before this, in Acts chapter 2, we learn that a great number on one day, 3,000 had come to know the Lord. That number now swells to 5,000, and by the way, we're only counting the men. If you include the women and children, maybe that would double this number. This, this is a lot of people. They have not been successful so far in stopping the gospel, but that is not going to keep them from trying. And brothers and sisters, we have testimonies like this today. The, the gospel has not stopped up to this point in Jerusalem, and the gospel remained unstopped till this day here in 2023. Whether it was last week, you were reading about this. You've been reading about this the last few weeks as a congregation. Whether it was from John's testimony or Julie's, Julia's testimony or Bree's or Audrey's or Jeff's, those are all testimonies of the unstoppability of the gospel making it to this day, to this year in this country. Every time somebody gets baptized in our church and shares their testimony, his or her testimony, we're reminded afresh, ah yes, the gospel is not stoppable. It can't be stopped by the changing of culture. It can't be stopped in the court of public opinion. And by the way, it's exciting to think about how the gospel will not be stopped in Burlington. This is part of the reason that God has been pleased to place this church here. He's been pleased to place this church here that there might be opportunities for us to proclaim the gospel in this city. You all know that there are apartment buildings opening nearby. There's a, another shopping center opening up just down the road. There are people running and jogging past our signs, jogging, running past our homes. We have opportunities to engage people in conversation about the gospel. And in fact, to, to inspire us and to equip us for this, this is the very reason that we have evangelism training, and today we're going to be having our, our second session so that we might be reminded afresh how the gospel is unstoppable in Burlington and beyond and how God would have us do that. That's why we're meeting to do that at six o'clock. So please, if you didn't join us last time, you haven't missed much, please join us tonight, and that's the end of my advert. Back, back to the text. So, so night falls, the curtain closes on the first scene of this courtroom drama, and scene two opens the next day as Peter and John are questioned about the gospel. And this is from verse 5 through to 12. This is the, the second point. Peter and John questioned about the gospel. So look at scene two. It begins with this impressive assembly of Jewish leaders. If you look at verse 5 and 6, rulers, elders, scribes, Ananias and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. This, this is a show of force. The, the last time we saw these guys, they were busy making sure that they had secured the execution of a problematic itinerant rabbi with a rapidly growing following. This is the crew. 
This is the same group that sent Jesus to Pilate and Herod and onto his execution on the cross. And so you've got to picture the scene here in verse 7. It says, when they had set them in their midst, the Sanhedrin, governing body of the Jews, they, they would have arranged themselves in a semicircle and put the accused person in the center. It's, a, it's an act of intimidation. Now, by Roman law, the Sanhedrin, this group of men, they could not sentence Peter and John to death. They could only sentence them to a beating or a whipping or imprisonment. But it wasn't that long ago that they proved that they, they knew how to handle that hurdle of putting people to death. You remember how easily these same leaders orchestrated Jesus' death at the, ex at the hands of Roman soldiers. And their opening jabs, it's meant to be intimidating as well. Look at what they say. They ask, by what power? Or what name do you do this? Hear the one-upmanship in their questioning. This, this is not a sympathetic inquiry. It's not an innocent question. This is a hostile confrontation. They're basically saying, look, since we didn't authorize this miraculous healing, who did? Who could have? It's a flex. It's meant to put Peter and John in their place. And, and, and it turns out it was the wrong question to ask. And this is where the courtroom drama really heats up. The, the Jewish rulers are trying to assert their power over Peter and John. And instead, they're going to be met with true power. Look at verse 8. Oh, this, this is such a great little sentence. Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. You want power. God not only has all power, His power is expressed in a myriad of ways. He, he exercises the power to create and the power to destroy, the power to heal, we saw in the last chapter, the power to raise from the dead. And here, before the hostility of the Jewish leaders, God decides to unleash His power in an unexpected way. What God, God does is He drops some shock and awe on the Sanhedrin. He fills Peter with rhetorical power. The, the power and courage, the power of clarity to speak the truth of God. And I, th I think for a moment, if you've been reading through the Gospels, if you remember going through Mark, maybe you're reading through the book of Acts and you thought to yourself, maybe you're reading about these miracles. You're reading these miracles like we saw in chapter 3. So, thinking today, you're here and you're saying, man, what happened to all of these miracles? I could really use one of those. If I could just do a miracle like, like that, just one, just even like a little one for family vacation, or maybe at the next Thanksgiving, well, maybe then my sister would believe. Just one little miracle and maybe my son would come to Christ. I mean, just maybe just a healing or something like that. 
then maybe my mom would finally take the gospel seriously. But that's not the main way that God has chosen to show His power during the church age. If, if you want a display of power, speak the words of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16. Tell them about Jesus. Remember John chapter 1 verse 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we know how powerful this word is. Remember Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here is power. When Peter, filled of the Spirit, when he was filled of the Spirit, power came into that courtroom. When you speak the Word of God, when you're courageous to clearly name Jesus before unbelievers, you are stepping out in the power of God. You're, you're proclaiming in His power, reliance on His Spirit to preach the truth, and life-giving power of the gospel. And, and look at how the power of the word goes to work in Peter's defense. There, there are really three steps to his argument. Verse 10 says, look, this man, this man was healed in the name of Jesus. It's like, you, you want to know what happened? This man right here, he was healed. Not because we're special. Not because we've got some power in ourselves. No, he was healed in the name of Jesus. Second step in his arguments, Jesus was rejected by you, but approved by God, verse 10 and 11. And we'll come back to that in just a second. And then in verse 12, the last step in the argument, he says, look, there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name by which men may be saved. So this is a brief speech. Courtroom speeches sometimes go on longer than this, but these three verses, this short speech, Peter's defense is powerful because the Holy Spirit is in that courtroom with him. Do you see the continuation of the importance of the Holy Spirit coming in the beginning of chapter 2? Now, Peter does really two important things in this speech. Don't miss it. First, he contrasts what the Jewish leaders did with what God did. He says, this man was healed in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. What a contrast. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. You think you had power to stop this, and yet you awakened something more powerful than you can imagine. You think his execution was stomping out the message of the gospel, but, but through his resurrection, he's guaranteed, God has guaranteed the gospel will never be stopped. 
And Peter is refuting the Jewish claim that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He says, look, you killed him, but that's not the end of the story. The resurrection is a vindication of Jesus. It's the divine approval that on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sins. He completely satisfied the wrath of God and saved every person whom He was sent to save. It's very, it's very simple logic. Jesus died. God raised Him in power, and now in power and in the authority of His name, He heals and saves through the work of the Holy Spirit. And second, the second thing Peter does that we ought not to miss again is by the power of the Spirit, Peter turns to Scripture and points out, look at, what, look at what the Bible said would happen. Look at verse 11. It's worth reading again. He says this, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 112, sorry, 118, verse 22. It's a really important psalm. It's one of the psalms that's the most quoted in the New Testament. And you don't need to turn there now, but you should read it soon, Psalm 118. It would be great for you to come back later today or tomorrow and read Psalm 118, because when the New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament like this, they're expecting their readers to recognize the context, everything else. To remember what's going on, not just the single verse, but in the entire psalm or passage, and they're quoting from, Psalm 118 is the last group of six psalms that, that were used by Jewish people to celebrate the Passover. So think back to Exodus. Think back to all that the Passover represents, all that, all that it means about God's saving power for His people. And this psalm now sees links all throughout your Bible, from Acts chapter 4 to Psalm 118, back to Exodus. And the power of God to render judgment on His enemies, but to, to save miraculously through blood His people. And this psalm, if you read it, it celebrates a great reversal. And the psalm, there's a movement from human rejection to divine reception. A movement from a human persecution to a divine celebration. And the picture is so vivid. So think about, this is the picture. Think about a pile of stones at a work site. All the masons are working. And they're trying to choose beautiful stones in order to, to assemble and build a beautiful stone facade. One stone they look at and they just chuck it to the side. We don't want that. We wouldn't even use that for a doorstop. But God sees the stone and He says, Ah, this will be the cornerstone. This will be the most important of stones. This stone is set. When it's set, it will align all the other stones in the wall in a straight line. And this stone, it's going to support the full weight of the entire structure. If this stone fails or if this stone is out of place, the entire building is going to collapse. But it will never, never fail. The stone is perfect. 
this stone is chosen by God to align every other stone and bear the weight of the building. If, if we had to put this in modern terms, I'd say that this warped, you, 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 you go to, this, to Canadian Tire and there's this warped piece of lumber and the contractors have rejected it. But you've taken it and it has become the header of a, of a load-bearing wall. That's what's happening here. Now look, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you think, what's with all of these stones and lumbers and, and stuff like that? Well, first I want to say to you, we're glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here and that you would come to hear God's Word preached today. And maybe you've been invited by a friend Maybe you're here because you're curious and you're just trying to be kind to your friend. Maybe you're a young person and mom and dad said that you must come. You need to know that this question is for you too. What, what do you make of this stone? In fact, Jesus one time, he turned to his followers and he asked, Who do you say that I am? How you answer that question is the most important thing you can ever do. Where, where does the stone go in the building of your life? It, it doesn't matter if your parents are followers of Jesus, or if your friends are followers of Jesus, or if you grew up going to a church and then fell away at some point. Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking that there is salvation, Peter says. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Have you proved that by experience? Have you, have you gone through these steps? Have you said, well, there's people that have said, I'm going to try and be saved. I'm going to try and be saved by doing good. I'm going to be a really good and a kind person, and you tried, and you try to do that, you've been working at it, and you find, no, I cannot be saved by this, I'm not good enough. And they said, well, I'm going to try and be saved by being religious, I'm going to go and read my Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give myself to fasting, and I'm going to fight sin in my life, and you find the more that you do that, you prove, no, this is not a way that I can be saved. Because whenever you do these things, you see how far short you fall. And so many of you here have come here today. You're Christians because you've proved by your experience there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. When I tried to do those things, I just realized how bad I am. I'm actually worse than I thought when I try to be good. Who do you say Jesus is? C.S. Lewis Christian of the last century put this in a very fine point when he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You must make your choice. So, my friends, as you hear these words, as you listen to Peter's speech, pray that you would make a wise choice. As Peter told this group in verse 12, salvation is in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you're not a Christian, listen to Peter. Listen to Jesus. You cannot save yourself. Your parents cannot save you. Your friends cannot save you. Your good deeds, your being a nice guy cannot save you. You Not being as bad as someone else cannot save you. Jesus alone is the cornerstone. He alone has the power to forgive and to save sinners. And so when we come to Him, if you put your faith in Him and turn away from your sins, you will be saved. And if you're not sure what that means or you you want to know more about it, come and find me or one of the other elders after church or talk to a friend who brought you or really just about anybody seated near you. We'd love to tell you more about it. And to my brothers and sisters of this church, brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter has given us quite an example of courage and clarity. I hope you notice Peter's courage and boldness even in the face of persecution. Think, think about this. Think about what this means for us. I wonder if Peter had this episode in mind when he wrote 1 Peter 3, verse 16. 1 Peter 3, verse 13 to 16. Listen, listen to what he says. And, and why, this is appropriate for us to listen to because I'll I tell you something, Pinelad. This as a reality is not too far off. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, it's easy to isolate verse 15 from this passage and focus on being prepared to make a defense. Maybe you've done an apologetics course. You probably would have heard that verse used. And that's good and it's wise. We should always be ready to explain what we believe and and, and what we do, but there's broader principles at work here. First, he says, have no fear of them. Peter and John, they were not afraid. And secondly, the principle here is courage comes from the spirits. 
The, the opposite of not being afraid is a little surprising. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You, you want the courage to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ in a group of people that are hostile to Him? Here's how you do it. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If we honor Christ the Lord as holy, if we make Him our treasure, if we make His Word our standard for behavior and conduct, then we can go into any situation ready to make a defense and provide an explanation for the hope that is in us and do it with gentleness and respect. Here's one way that I heard a child explain the other day of how we can honor Christ as holy, Christ the Lord as holy. This, this child said to me, someone had told them, it's, it's pretty, you're, it's weird to go to church. It's weird that you go to church. They didn't know about church. And then I was talking to the child, and, and she said, do you know what? It, it's weird that we get to go to church. It's, it went on, it's crazy Use the word crazy. It's crazy that we get to go to church. That God, the holy God, would let us come and sing to Him. That the holy God would let us come and hear His word and be with other people that He saved and loved. Why would God let us do that? When you realize that God is holy, you realize that the right to be are the right to be able to hold God's word in our hands and say his words with our lips and that we can pray together, that we can sing these songs together when many of the words that we sing are often only half-truths from our hearts. You know what I mean? You know when, we, when we're sitting here and we're singing, I surrender all? Or really, do we surrender all? But God condescends, and in mercy, He says, Okay, my child, I love you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. We don't live like that. And yet God, the holy God, lets us sing like that to Him. What mercy! Despite all of our mixture, our best prayers, I love John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He says, my best prayers have enough sin in it to damn the whole world. All the mixture of emotions and hypocrisies and little things that I'm fighting against, all the sleepiness and, and lack of reverence I have, and yet God is just so merciful. You put God aside in your heart like that? You're not going to be scared of anyone else. The fear of the Lord is the fear that drives out every other fear. So this is a dramatic scene in this courtroom. And there's one scene left. The jury needs to bring back the verdict. So we've seen the arrest. We've seen the questioning. Thirdly, the verdict. The third point is the verdict. Can't stop the gospel, verse 13 to 22. The verdict cannot stop the gospel. Luke begins the scene by explaining that the Jewish authorities were astonished by what they saw and heard from Peter and John. 
Why were they so amazed? It says in verse 13 that they perceived that Peter and John were uneducated common men. The, the word uneducated here is literally a word that means they had no grammar. It can sometimes, it can sometimes mean that someone's illiterate, but since Peter and John both wrote books of the New Testament, it's simpler to understand that it means they weren't trained by rabbis. That's what it means there by uneducated. They didn't have a rabbi ever teaching them as such. And so the Sanhedrin's looking at them, looking down on them, thinking they've got no training. They're not equipped like us rabbis. They don't understand the Old Testament like we do. They don't have biblical training to make these kind of textual connections to Psalm 118. How dare they? Luke says it's a bold move. And Peter and John, they're, they're treading on what the Sanhedrin thought was their exclusive domain. And so they only have one way to explain it, what it says in verse 13. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. How else do you explain it? Where else would courage and clarity like this come from? Where else could insight into God's Word and the ability to apply it and make it real in our lives, where else do you get that? One place, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to His disciples a number of times and spent time instructing them. Luke, in his Gospel, chapter 24, verse 45, says that He opened their minds then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And that instruction from Jesus was better than any rabbi teaching course you'll ever find on the internet or anywhere else. And so we would do well to follow Peter and John's example to be with Jesus and to learn from Jesus how to read our Bible. Why? Why are we a people that are given to God's Word, to reading God's Word every day? Why are we a people that are given to praying? Let me tell you this. If you read, if you're in your Bible, if you're saturated with it, if you're giving yourself to prayer, people will recognize that you too have been with Jesus. What a wonderful thing for someone to be able to say about you. If you sit under the preached word every Sunday, if you make a priority of being here under the preached word, like you're doing right now, and you make a priority of applying it to your life and meditating on it, people will recognize that you've been with Jesus. If you encourage your fellow Christians with God's Word, when you gather as family and, and friends, man to man, or one and one in, wherever it is, if, if you're in a, a Bible study in the church, if you're in any of the small groups that meet, if you're participating in these aspects of the life of the church, if you're fellowshipping with Christians in the week, people will recognize that you have been with Jesus. And God gives us an understanding of the Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God gives us an understanding of our situation in the world through the Bible. He gives us discernment through His Word. He gives us courage to share the gospel through His Word. 
He gives us clarity. It says in Titus 2 about how to live godly and upright lives in the world. How does God do it? It's through His Word. We're, we're confused about what's happening in our hearts. You're confused about what's happening in our lives. You're confused about what's happening in the culture. God's Word illuminates it. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so here the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they've got two problems. Firstly, Peter and John, they're uneducated common fishermen, and they're beating them at their own game of interpreting the Scripture. And second, verse 14, they recognize Peter and John have a miracle on their side. Because the guy that was healed is 40 years old. Everyone knows him. They didn't talk to him when he was three and say, listen, we've got a plan. In 47 years, no, 37 years, it's going to be amazing. Just pretend to be crippled the rest of your life. No, everyone had known this man. So not only are they handling God's word better, they've got a better argument. They've got God's word and they've seemed to heal this guy. What are we going to do? So the Sanhedrin, they're kind of just looking around, not sure what's going to happen. And so in verse 15, they sent Peter and John out of the room. They need to talk about it, talk it over, figure it out. And they acknowledge their problem in verse 16 to 17. These guys did a miracle. This is legit. So they come up with a solution, a gag order. That'll stop them. Because it says... We don't want this to spread any further. And so in verse 18, they call Peter and John back in and they tell them, you may not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And they're like, hey, in case you don't understand, to be really clear, we really mean it this time. You may not speak or teach at all. Zero in the name of Jesus. Don't do it. And that message from the Sanhedrin, it has been echoed in every culture in different ways, in every corner of the world throughout human history. And that message, it resonates into our own culture. You can say whatever you want to today, as long as it's not in the name of Jesus. We live in a time when you can speak and, and do outrageously wicked things and you're fine. In fact, you're praised. But if you speak in the name of Jesus, if you bring biblical convictions into a matter now, now you're a bigot. Now you're intolerant. Now you're narrow-minded. Acts 4 helps us to see these are not new accusations. There's nothing new under the sun. Acts 4 is a timely word for us because Peter and John show us how Christians can wisely and courageously respond to the opposition of a culture. Look at what they say in verse 19 and 20. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God, I love this, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you misjudge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. His courage and clarity. 
Peter and John are standing firm on this. They say, here's what matters in the sight of God. Did you catch that little phrase, in the sight of God? For Christians, that is our starting point. That is our reference. When our culture presents ungodly ideologies and progressive politics and all matter of perversity and wickedness and tries to pass it off as love or kindness or self-expression, we need to follow Peter and John's example and say, what is this in the sight of God? What, what would God think? What does God's Word say? And Peter and John, they're unwilling to submit. Jewish leaders are trying to shut them up, and they're saying no. And other Christians like them throughout church history have said the same thing. No, no, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We cannot but speak of Jesus Christ and His saving power through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave and His ascension to the right hand of the Father and His eventual return. No, we will not stop. Athanasius could not but speak of Jesus. And he went into exile five times under four different emperors, spent 17 years of his life in exile in the desert. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley could not but speak of Jesus. They were willing to die a fiery death tied to a wooden stake. Martin Luther could not but speak of Jesus, so his conscience is bound by the Word of God and he defied popes and kings. William Wilberforce could not speak could not help but speak of Jesus, and so he stood against the wickedness of slavery in the British Empire. Dietrich Bonhoeffer could not but help but speak, so he resisted the Third Reich and stood for the gospel in Nazi Germany. Our brothers and sisters now in China and in Yemen and in North Korea and in other countries around the world where the gospel is closed, they cannot help but speak of Jesus. They're willing to be persecuted, imprisoned this very day for the sake of the gospel. And we cannot but speak of Jesus even when we're sneered at and scorned for believing that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And we cannot but speak of Jesus when we're called bigots for upholding biblical views of manhood and womanhood and marriage. But I'll tell you this, the gospel is unstoppable. And so we cannot but speak of the name of Jesus. And Jesus prepared us not to stop. He gave us words. He gave us insight to fortify our courage, to to put steel in our spines. Listen, Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, he says, here's what will happen, and here's how to be blessed. Are you blessed? Are you ready? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, 
that the gospel will not be stopped. And Peter told this courtroom that the gospel will not be stopped. And we have these words today in our Bibles. We're reminded today that the gospel cannot be stopped. So, do not stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Now, the story ends pretty well. The Sanhedrin, they, they blusters a little. They threaten Peter and John a little more. And then they let them go. It didn't work. Verse 21, did people stop talking? No. Did it end all of that Jesus talk? No. All the people were praising God. And what happened? The gospel's not stopped. This particular courtroom drama is very satisfying for us because the good guys win. It's a triumph. It's a win for the gospel. Peter and John go free. There's no beatings. There's no imprisonment. It doesn't always end like this, and we'll see that. In the case of Stephen, in a couple of chapters, and many other examples throughout church history, but what do we take away from this one? What do we learn from this drama? It's very, very simply and briefly this. The Bible remains on trial. The attacks on the Bible come from the hard sciences. Those attacks remain today. However, additional attacks are coming from social sciences. They do. And behind that are opposing worldviews. One worldview takes God's Word, an ancient book, as an authority for us today. And the other worldview sees no reason whatsoever to be fettered to this book. We know so much more. We know so much more today. We're not serving fellow men and women well by not telling them the truth. Churches are not serving people well. They're not loving people by compromising the truth of God's Word. If we compromise the truth, we've got nothing left to offer the world. We must speak the truth in love, but we must speak the truth. We serve our neighbor when we speak the truth. We're loving our neighbor when we speak the truth. And brothers and sisters, as we go out into our day and into the week and the rest of our lives, wherever you go and whatever you do, whenever we encounter someone, God has given us courage and conviction. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the message of salvation in no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So that as we gather as a church individually, and go out and proclaim to a dying world the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. As we do that, we're loving our neighbor. When we speak clearly and courageously again and again, the gospel isn't, it's not safe. The gospel is not safe for us, but it itself cannot be stopped. Let's not speak, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the glorious gospel and the privileges that are ours because of it. That we who were once hostile to God, enemies of God, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, fill us with your spirit that we would be a bold people that we would be a courageous people and a clear people, that wherever we go, we would leave a savor of Christ, 
which is a savor of life to those that you are saving, but a savor of death to those who are perishing. But when we leave people, would they know that we have been with Jesus? Would we live lives? Would we truly live so close to you, Lord? That that is the flavor of our lives and the tenor of our conversation. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.